This is episode 1, Into the Darkness of the Unknown. Good evening, listeners. Tonight, we shall go and explore what the unexpected has for us tonight. As the monsters come out to play and stories are told, but beware as this podcast episode is for mature audiences, so listener discretion is advised. Beware, boys and girls. Beware, Bree Woods. It is no place for such young children. Monsters are looking in its shadows, big and small, wicked and kind. There are brothers that roam these woods, five of them, looking to either guide or slay its travelers. Heed my warning and you might survive. Don't, and your death is almost certain. At the threshold stands the oldest, the harvester, the wisest and meekest of the brothers who towers over all manner of man or beast, yet it is more gentle than a morning dew. Perhaps you know of the harvester who breaches the woods at dusk, who tills the fields as we sleep and returns before the break of dawn. Yes, the harvester has brought good fortune to our land, but do not be deceived, children, for he offers no protection. He dares not cross his brothers as not his brothers him a blood bond that must never be broken between them. All he offers is his wisdom and guidance, for that is all he can give before you part ways. But take his words to heart and never forget, for the other four beasts are not as kind. Beware your surroundings, little ones, for the fiercest brother pursues you. The stalker, lurking in its trees and shrubs, hunting the prey that roams its woods, Yes, beware the stalker, for he shows no mercy, like the lioness that watches over his cubs, or the hornets and bees that protect their hives. He thrives on an abominable aggression fiercer than hellfire. When I was young, we knew little of these beasts, believing them to be just that, beasts. To us, mindless and animalistic in their nature, and our actions were in accordance as such. My father gathered many of our men for the hunt, setting out to slay these monstrosities that plagued our people. I am still haunted by their laminations that faded into the night, embraced by my weeping mother, who sought to shield me. By morning our eyes were laid on the wake of the hunt. The men's skins mended together into a gruesome banner, stretched out along the lines in the rising sun displayed to all of our people. Their killer's title inscribed across the flesh of my father and his men. It's true, survival cannot be guaranteed with this encounter, but not incredible, for there is a way. You must run, children, run fast and far. Run and keep your sight forward, for behind is certain death. This beast is bloodthirsty and nearly relentless. His pursuit will only end with one of two means. The first, his hunt proves bountiful. The second, his prey becomes upon its other kin, the third beast. Yes, bloodthirsty, but not the least, but but foolish. For once you are in the company of his younger brother. You are no longer his prey, but the guest of the sculptor, the most vain of the five brutish siblings. Unlike his brother before him, the stalker, The sculptor is more cordial in the presence of strangers. He even strikes many as a kind-hearted creature, appearing elegant and humble in nature. But you are not beyond the realm of danger, children. Although the sculptor seems pure of heart, he is truly self-obsessed and easily offended. From each guest, he demands nothing less than absolute glorification. Once you are in his presence, there is no early 
departures. You are, his, you are his guest until he grows weary of your company, all the while amusing him with melodies of flattering words and praises, be either his presence or his talents, or even his artist, artistic gifts. As his name implies, the sculptor's most distinguishable trait is his sculpting, spending many countless hours molding, carving, and chiseling away. And what of his materials, you ask your children? Well, sometimes wood, other times clay, and a few times unruly guests. Which reminds me of the story of a huntsman from our village who reeked with confidence, daring to accept any challenge. To him, the five beats of Bree Woods were just that, a challenge that he sought to conquer. At its threshold, he passed the harvester, who sensed the determination of the huntsman. He besought him to reconsider continuing forward. You will not make it far like that, he warned. The huntsman scoffed at the first species, please. Presuming his words were a means of intimidation, he continued into the woods where the next of the five waited, leaving the gentle harvester in a daze. Well, days passed, then weeks, then months, and there was no evidence of the huntsman's return. Many wondered of his fate, but only I was determined to seek the truth. In the dead of night, I slipped from my bed and hurried to the fields. There, the lonesome harvester tended the soil. I anxiously, I anxiously asked, what of the huntsman? The lofty creature looked down to me, and with a somber note, he answered. He was swift and spirited, eluding the stalker's grasp, but was far too assured, and was seized by the presence of the sculptor. The sculptor gave to him a nod, but the huntsman did not return it. The sculptor gave him to his charm, but the huntsman only gave him his tongue. The sculptor prepared them a pipe and puffed once, but the hus huntsman puffed twice. The sculptor prepared them tea and a and took a spoonful of sugar, but the huntsman took two spoonfuls. The sculptor prepared them a feast, but the huntsman gave him no thanks. The sculptor off offered him a gift, but the huntsman demanded more. And the sculptor was rattled, but the huntsman remained odious. But what, but what became of him? I persisted, and the harvester drew a small crimson effigy from his hide. For the sculptor, the company was excruciating. He sighed, bestowing upon me the sculpture, for the huntsman his was dealt back tenfold. And with that, we spoke no more of the matter. Leave your confidence at home, children, for that was a mistake the huntsman made. You should be timid and respectful, or you will be molded into his next piece. If the evening is satisfactory, you'll be allowed to depart, only to continue deeper into the woods. Confrontation with the fourth beast, however, is preventable. Just fight shy of the scent of ginger and ash. Though, like the stalker, he may just find you instead. The brewer, the most debauched of the five. A stumbling, bumbling, drunken brute singing to indulge himself with a lavished feast. He offers to all travelers of the woods his brew, a deceptic connotation contrived to tempt any mortal, enticing them with a heavenly scent that is nearly irresistible. But you must resist, boys and girls. Do not partake of the drink. You cannot let it woo you. With only a droplet of the repugnant ale, you will fall into an eternal rest. And when you are exposed and defenseless, the brewer lets his true intentions be known. He devours his unsuspecting prey slowly and agonizingly, bit by bit. Your will must be far greater to overcome this enticement. It is only 
It is the only thing that separates you from life and death. The brewer cannot force you to sip from his cup, neither drink nor sip or even taste the brewer's brew. Try as he might, you must not succumb. Brace yourself and persist, for you must regain your bearings for what waits ahead. The fifth and final son of Bree Woods, the spoiled. With laughter like sobs and sobs like laughter, he skitters along the forest floor like vile vermin. Driven by a tormental, tormentful desire for what others possessed, he will do anything imaginable to acquire them. The brat of Bree Woods stalks its wanderers, knowing what is most precious to them at that moment. He will give you only one chance to decide, with the only two options to choose from. You can surrender what he demands willingly, and he'll leave you to escape the woods, or you can choose to refuse, and he will relieve you of it in death. You do not see many strangers to our village, and that is owed to the spoiled. They are not as fortunate to their first encounter, the harvester, who offers his guidance to ensure them a safe passage. No, for them, they travel with uncertainty, with no understanding of what lurks in, in wait. And when the spoiled makes his presence know, they attempt to resist him and are met with a terrible fate. A young outsider succeeded in escaping to the safety of our village, having eluded the beasts that would surely have stopped her. And she recalled the chilling tale of how she survived and how truly horrific it was to have met with the spoiled. Her people had been wandering the land of much, for much time, searching for a new home in times of famine. Seeking what precious land waited for them on the other side, they, they journeyed forth into the treacherous Bree Woods. It wasn't long before they were met by the youngest brother of the woods, who knew them of, of many goods and valuables they brought on their travels. From each he demanded what he claimed as his, or they would travel no further. But they were far too naive to submit to him, and instead sought to kill him. The beast held his own will against their men, but was soon overpowered by their great numbers. The spoiled desperately cried out, as he would surely have perished. But then they came a fierce thunder from the woods, and ferociously from the woods came his fourth brethren, the brewer, the sculptor, the stalker, and the harvester. With wrathful intentions, they struck fiercely, slaughtering those that harmed their helpless baby brother. Only one escaped the onslaught, the young outsider, who hid away in the trunk of a weeping willow, watching as her people were killed, looted, and devoured, then slipped away to our village while the five brother asked in their victory. But you see, children, her tale does not end there, for her rival was brought more trouble than good. The harvester has not tilled a field in much time, and our crop has ceased to grow, leaving us to starve. The brothers of Bree Woods are scorned, and demanded from us autonomous. What wrong have we done? We have stolen that which belongs to the spoiled. Tonight, children, we will atone for our sins, and we will return what we so foolishly have taken. Tonight, sweet children, say us a prayer, for tonight we must go into the woods. Russian researchers in the late 1940s kept five people awake for 15 days using an experimental gas-based simulant. They were kept in a sealed environment to carefully monitor, the, monitor their oxygen intake so the gas didn't kill them, since it was toxic in high concentrations. 
This was before closed circuit cameras, so they had only microphones and five inch thick glass porthole sized windows into the chamber to monitor them. The chamber was stocked with books, cots to sleep on, but no bedding, running water and toilet, and enough dried food to last all five for over a month. The test subjects were political prisoners deemed enemies of the state during World War II. Everything was fine for the, five, for the first five days. The subjects hardly complained, having been promised falsely that they would be free if they submitted to the test and did not sleep for 30 days. Their conversations and activities were monitored, and it was noted that they continued to talk about increasingly traumatic incidents in their past, and the general tone of their conversation took on a darker aspect after the four-day mark. After five days, they started to complain about the circumstances and events that led them to where they were and started to demonstrate severe paranoia. They stopped talking to each other and began alternately whispering to the microphones in one-way mirrored portholes. Oddly, they all seemed to think they could win the trust of the experimenters by turning over their comrades, the other subjects in captivity with them. At first, the researchers suspected this was an effect of the gas itself. After nine days, the first of them started screaming. He ran the length of the chamber, repeatedly yelling at the top of his lungs for three hours straight. He continued attempting to scream, but was only able to reduce occasional squeaks. The researchers postulated that he had physically torn his vocal cords. The most surprising, the most surprising thing about this behavior is how the other captives reacted to it or rather didn't react to it. They continued whispering to the microphones until the second of the captives started to scream. The two non-screaming captives took the books apart, smeared page after page with their own feces, and pasted them calmly over the glass portholes. The screaming promptly stopped. So did the whispering to the microphones. After three more days passed, the research checked the microphones hourly to make sure that they were working, since they thought it was impossible that no sound could be coming with five people inside. The oxygen consumption in the chamber indicated that all five must still be alive. In fact, it was the amount of oxygen five people could consume at a very heavy level of strenuous exercise. On the morning of the 14th day, the, researcher did, the researchers did something they said they will not do to get a reaction from the captives. They used the intercom inside the chamber, hoping to provoke any response from the captives they were afraid were either dead or vegetables. They announced, we are going to open, we are opening the chamber to test the microphones, step away from the door, and lie flat on the floor or you will be shot. Compliance will earn you one of your immediate freedom. To their surprise, they heard a single phrase and the calm voice response, we no longer want to be freed. Debate broke out among the researchers and the military forces funding the research. Unable to provoke any more response using the intercom, it was finally decided to open the chamber at midnight on the 15th day. The chamber was flushed of the stimulant gas and filled with fresh air and immediately voices from the microphones began to object. Three different voices began begging as if pleading for the life of loved ones to turn the gas back on. The chamber was open and soldiers sent in to retrieve the test subjects. They began scream to scream louder than ever, and so did the soldiers when they saw what was inside. Four of the five subjects were still alive, although no, no one could rightly call the state any of them were in life. The food rations past day five had not so been as touch, 
There were chunks of meat from the dead test subject's thighs and chest stuffed into the drain in the center of the chamber, blocking the drain and allowing four inches of water to accumulate on the floor. Precisely how much of the water on the floor was actually blood was never determined. All four surviving test subjects also had large portions of muscle and skin torn away from their bodies. The destruction of flesh and exposed bone on their fingertips indicated that the wounds were inflicted by hand, not with teeth as the research initially thought. Closer examination of the position and angles of the wounds indicated that most of it, not all of them, were self-inflicted. The abominable organs below the rib cage of all four test subjects had been removed, while the heart, lungs, and diaphragm remained in place. The skin and most of the muscles attached to the ribs had been ripped off, exposing the lungs through the rib cage. All the blood vessels and organs remained intact. They had just been taken out and laid on the floor, fanning out around the evascreated but still living bodies of the subjects. The digestive tract of all four could be seen to be working, digesting food. It, it quickly became apparent that what they were disgusting was their own flesh that, that they had ripped off and eaten over the course of days. Most of the soldiers were Russian special operators at the facility, but so many refused to return to the chamber to remove the TEF subjects. They continued to scream to be left in the chamber and alternatively begged and demanded that the gas be turned back on lest they fell asleep. To everyone's surprise, the TEF subjects put up a fierce fight in the process of being removed from the chamber. One of the Russian soldiers died from having his throat whipped out, another was gravely injured by having his testicles ripped off, and an artery in his leg severed by one of the TEF subjects' teeth. Another five of the soldiers lost their lives if you count the ones that committed suicide in the weeks following the incident. In the struggle, one of the four living subjects had his spleen ruptured and he bled out almost immediately. The medical researchers attempted to sedate him, but this proved impossible. He was injected w with more than 10 times the human dose of a morphine derivative and still fought like a cornered animal, breaking the ribs and arm of one doctor. When, one, when Hart was seen to beat for a full two minutes after he had bled out to the point there was more air in his vascular system than blood. Even after it stopped, he continued to scream and flail for another three minutes, struggling to attack anyone in reach and just repeating the word more over and over, weaker and weaker, until he finally fell silent. The surviving three test subjects were heavily restrained and moved to a medical facility, with the two intact vocal cords continuously begging for the gas demanding to be kept awake. The most injured of the three was taken to the only surgical operating room that the facility had. In the process of preparing the subject to have his organs placed back within his body, it was found that he was effectively Im immune to the sedative they had, that they had given to prepare him for the surgery. He fought furiously against the restraints when the anesthetic gas was brought out to put him under. He managed to tear most of the way through a four-inch wide leather strap on one wrist, even though the weight of a 200-pound soldier was holding that wrist as well. It, was, it took only a little more anesthetic than normal to put him under, and the instant his eyelids fluttered and closed, his heart stopped. In the autopsy of the test subject that died on the operating table, it was found that his blood had tripled the normal level of oxygen. His muscles that were still attached to his skeleton were badly torn, and he had broken nine bones in his struggle not to be subdued. Most of them were from the force his own muscles had exerted on them. The second survivor had been the first of the group of five to start screaming. 
His vocal cords destroyed, he was unable to beg or object to surgery, and he only reacted by shaking his head violently in disapproval when the anesthetic gas was brought near him. He shook his head yes when someone suggested, reluctantly, they try the surgery without anesthetic and did not react for the entire six-hour procedure of replacing his abdominal organs and attempting to cover them with what remained of his skin. The surgeon presiding stated repeatedly that it should be medically possible for the patient to still be alive. One terrified nurse assisting the surgery stated that she had seen the patient's mouth curl into a smile several times whenever his, his eyes met hers. When the surgery ended, the subject looked at the surgeon and began to wheeze loudly, attempting to talk while struggling. Assuming this must be something of drastic importance, the surgeon had a pen and pad fetched so the patient could write his message. It was simple. Keep cutting. The other two, the other two test subjects were given the same surgery, both without anesthetic as well. Although they had been injected with a paralytic for the duration of the operation, the surgeon found it impossible to perform the operation while the patients laughed continuously. Once paralyzed, the subjects could only follow the attending researchers with their eyes. The paralytic cleared their system in an abnormally short period of time, and they were soon trying to escape their bonds. The moment they could speak, they were, be they were again asking for the stimulant gas. The researchers tried asking why they had injured themselves why they had ripped out their own guts and why they wanted to be given the gas again. Only one response was given. I must remain awake. All three subjects' restraints were reinforced when they were placed back into the chamber, awaiting determination as to what should be done with them. The researchers, facing the wrath of their military benefactors, for having failed the stated goals of their project, considered euthanizing the surviving subjects, a commanding officer in ex-KGB instead saw potential and wanted to see what would happen if they were put back on the gas. The researchers strongly objected, but they but were overruled. In preparation for being sealed in the chamber again, the subjects were connected to an EEG monitor and had their restraints padded for long-term confinement. To everyone's surprise, all three stopped struggling the moment it was let slip that they were going to be back on the gas. It was obvious that at this point, all three were putting up a great struggle to stay awake. One of the subjects that could speak was humming loudly and continuously. The mute subject was straining his legs against the leather bonds with all his might, first left, then right, then left again, for something to focus on. The remaining subject was holding his head off of his pillow and blinking rapidly. Having been the first to be wired for EEG, most of the researchers were monitoring his brainwaves in surprise. They were normal most of the time, but sometimes flatlined inexplicably. It looked as if he were repeatedly suffering brain death before returning to normal. As they focused on paper scrolling out the brainwave monitor, only one nurse saw his eyes slip shut as the same moment his head hit the pillow. His brainwaves immediately changed to that of deep sleep, then flatlined for the last time as his heart simultaneously stopped. The only remaining subject that could speak started screaming to be sealed in now. His brainwaves show the same flat lines as one who just died from falling asleep. The commander gave the order to seal the chamber with both subjects inside, as well as three researchers. One of the, one of the named three immediately drew his gun and shot the commander point blank between the eyes, then turned the gun on the mute subject and blew his brains out as well. 
He pointed his gun at the remaining subject, still restrained to a bed, as the remaining members of the, med of the medical and research team fled the room. I won't be locked in here with these things. Not with you, he screamed at the man strapped to the table. What are you, he demanded. I must know. The subject smiled. Have you forgotten so easily? The subject asked. We are you. We are the madness that lurks within you all, begging to be free at every moment in your deepest animal mind. We are what you hide from in your beds every night. We are what you sedate into silence and paralysis when you go to the nocturnal haven where we cannot tread. The researcher paused, then aimed at the subject's heart and fired. The EEG flatlined as the subject weakly choked out. So nearly free. Welcome back, listeners, to your shelter and sanctuary, but the monsters and stories are yet to return once again. If you like these stories, the credit to the authors will be in the show notes, and if you like this episode, then please give a like and subscribe to the podcast. Tonight, we end off with the scary fact, which is after just a few days of death, your digestive system begins to digest your body. Have a great night, and look out for more stories that will be arriving soon.